Sunday morning studying the book of Acts together. And we come to Acts chapter 20 this morning. If you're with us and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. And wave to them and they'll get you a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, please make that Bible a gift from us to you today. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. And from Miletus, he, that is the Apostle Paul, sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulation await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day, that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for, and that's a reason word, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage. We thank you that it is in the Bible. We thank you for what it builds into our lives, our understanding of you, our understanding of the body of Christ, our understanding of the church that we attend, our understanding of the responsibilities that you give to leaders in a church, our understanding of um, how all of this impacts each and every one of us. And because it's important to you, Lord, it's very important to us to hear and to know what's contained in these verses. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue his work in our midst this morning and that you would teach us, Lord, all that is on your heart in this passage. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul, by way of reminder, is very nearly at the end of his third missionary journey. He's making his way ultimately to Jerusalem for something that is very much on his heart to accomplish. And as he's making his way back to his home church of Antioch in Jerusalem, he stops in a city by boat by the name of Miletus, about 36 miles Uh, overland from the city of Ephesus. And he called for the leaders of the church in Ephesus, where he had just recently spent three years of his life in establishing the church there, that they would come and meet with him at Miletus so that he can then pour his heart out to them related to his understanding of ministry and of leadership for a local church. They gladly made the journey Uh, to uh, Miletus in order to 
uh, hear from him. And then Paul begins to speak to them about uh, all of these things. Again, handing over what uh, is arguably the most significant church in the New Testament, uh, the church at Ephesus, to these leaders. Before he did it, there were some things that he wanted to speak to them from his own life and then also uh, exhort them about concerning their own life. In our previous two messages from the passage, we have already taken note of, of Paul here speaking about the importance of in a leader, but in all of us, of our manner of life. That is our example and our godly character, that we actually live the life uh, that we preach and that we teach. And then he also declared the importance that at our core for everyone that serves the Lord should be the heart of a bondservant, that we do not feel ourselves uh, too good to do anything that God calls us to do, to spend our lives in any way or anywhere that God desires to spend uh, our lives. And so this removes this uh, very significant uh, sense of uh, entitlement and this nurturing of self-will that is so strong within the culture so that it doesn't affect us within uh, the body of Christ. And then third, that our Christian service is supremely to the Lord himself, and that's our aim, is to please him as much as we love people, uh, to please him supremely. And then last time we looked at uh, the uh, vitalness of humility in Christian service. And so we continue to look at his uh, Paul's encouragements to them and to us this morning from his own ministry when he declares in verse 19 that he served the Lord with many tears and trials. And serving the Lord, no matter what capacity God calls us to, and every Christian is called to serve the Lord in some capacity, whether it's within the you know confines of a church grounds or what's happening at a church or whether it's some place out in the world in some particular way in which you are a light for the Lord and so forth. But each one of us are called uh, into Christian service. And here Paul aims specifically at the position of leadership in a local church and that to hold that position within a local church, to be an elder, to be a deacon, to be a pastor, to to be a home fellowship leader, whatever the position might uh, be, but it's going to involve experiencing many trials, Uh, many, many joys to be sure, uh, but many, many trials for sure as well. The word that he uses there, he he speaks of just not an occasional trial, but he uses the word many, and the many in the original language, it means many, it means much, it means crowds, (laughs) it means great in number, and uh, that's the portion of any leader of any local church. Leaders are, of course, a special object of the devil's opposition and in an attempt to get them to fall, to get them to compromise. Uh, there is uh, never a, uh, any significant release from uh, spiritual warfare surrounding their life. There is the uh, ample rejection and persecution from the world. And then there is also uh, the persecution and the rejection that can occur even within the church. Uh, 
Uh, There is the constant fight against things that are unhealthy, that are going on uh, even within Christendom or within the world that is trying to uh, come into the church and influence the church and the resisting that so the the church remains biblical, that it remains well uh, directed. Again, that false, uh, that constant fight against and vigilance related to false doctrine and false practices that are uh, always uh, floating around uh, uh, in the body of Christ as a whole. And none of this kind of thing uh, just happens on on its own. It happens because uh, leaders take a stand and uh, they say, no, that it's not going to happen here no matter how popular it might be uh, somewhere else. There is also, I think, in terms of uh, speaking about trials and so forth, is uh, the incredible amount of knowledge that any leader in a local church has of the private affairs of people, their heartbreaks, the difficulties that have come into their life on every kind of level. And I think that the average pastor certainly in a church will come to hear and certainly uh, in, in a year or two years uh, become privy to as much heartbreak and a much difficulty that people are in the middle of in life than maybe the average person will face in their entire lifetime. And of course, all of these things and more, it all takes its an emotional uh, toll upon a leader. And so Paul declared that not only are we to serve the Lord in this way with many trials, but we it will also mean many tears. And the tears are plural there, and it's speaking literally of the fact uh, of much weeping. I think that this provides us with a a very beautiful and a very personal. Paul didn't need to reveal this uh, to us about himself. I think that most often I do, and I wouldn't be surprised if you did the same. When we think about the Apostle Paul, we think about this mountain of faith. We think about this man with such a strong will and such a strong determination and so tough. And so often we can think of him as almost emotionless in terms of how he just pounds from one thing to the other, gets up and continues on. But here we're told that he did an, a lot of crying as a result of his call. And he was warning these leaders and us as well uh, that we would do the same. There's the constant, I think, emotional strain uh, of the calling and also the heartbreak that is there in a calling as a leader. I think that tears are merely what uh, blood is uh, to a wound in the physical body. Tears are to a wound of the spirit or of the heart. And I think for the Apostle Paul, yours and mine may be something very different and probably uh, is different. But the greatest source of heartbreak that Paul experienced in his ministry, we might be surprised at what he uh, reveals that uh, to be here in the passage, it came from the constant plotting of his own people, of the Jews uh, against him, the persecution that they brought against him. And their constant and in, in overall, not, not completely, but in general, their rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, despite the fact that the Old Testament scriptures uh, gave them and gave us 
a perfect description of Jesus as that promised Messiah. And then the violence that they resorted to continually in order to not only stop Paul from preaching to them, but to stop Paul from preaching to anyone, to any other Jew. And all of this hurt the Apostle Paul because of his great heart for the Jews. And his heart for the Jews and their salvation is astonishing. He gives us a glimpse at that in Romans chapter 9 when he wrote, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. He said, I would be willing to be accursed. I'd be willing to lose my salvation if it were possible. And it's not. But to lose my salvation in order that my people, the Jews, uh, might turn to Christ and be saved. That's how much he longed for the salvation of uh, the Jews. Christian service in terms of application on this particular statement of Paul, uh, it doesn't matter what it might be that God has called us to do. It's never easy, and uh, it never has been easy, and it never will be easy. There's always this uh, this uh, thing about serving the Lord where it becomes the most valued part of our life, the most significant part of our life in terms of advancing the kingdom of God, representing the kingdom of God. No matter what we do, you know, week in and week out uh, for a living, and that's its own ministry as well, uh, to serve the Lord, to view that as service, it is a tremendous fulfillment in all of it, but it will also mean many tears and trials. And I think that this helps leaders, it helps all of us uh, to have realistic expectations about Christian service. And I have, uh, and, and realistic expectations are important. The idea that this is never going to break our heart, that this is never going to be uh, an extremely and perhaps the most difficult thing we will accomplish in our life, whatever that service is in your life, is to bring an unrealistic expectation uh, to Christian service. And then the idea comes that once it does get hard, and then when it gets so hard that it then begins to translate into tears that somehow I'm the oddball. Somehow I must be doing this wrong. Somehow uh, God must not be with me or he hasn't called me to this. And when Paul writes with the kind of candor that he does here and makes us realize, no, it has always been this way and it will always be this way. You are normal. I have no doubt that this mention of Paul concerning the trials and the tears and the hardship of all of it, uh, that, uh, that it, all that we do in serving the Lord is intended uh, to be hard. And uh, the word trial that Paul uses there, it speaks literally of an examination or a test 
that something is put to in order to uh, learn its true nature. In other words, God allows these trials to come into the lives of leaders and each of us in our area of service, first of all, to develop godly character in our lives. Personally, I would hate to think of the person I would be today apart from what I have been forced to learn in order to grow and even survive in God's calling upon my life. It forces me to grow in a way that I would never force myself to grow. It does something uh, good in in our lives that way. And, uh, and the importance of it. I think if a person looks and says, I think I've hit a plateau in my Christian life and I want to grow even further, one of the first questions I would ask is, where are you serving uh, the Lord? What is God's call upon your life? Maybe he's calling you to an expanded uh, ministry and influence uh, for sure. As that happens, growth will have to occur as a byproduct. This Christian service, and certainly for leaders, it produces a godly character and a Christ-likeness in our life that we would never otherwise know. And so that is something to keep our eyes on. Maybe you are in your service to the Lord. You're in a period of uh, deep trial, a period and a season of tears. And so often uh, the difficulty of the circumstance is so intense that it's using up all of the oxygen in the room. We can barely take our eyes off of the train wreck that it appears to be. And the key in periods like that is to stop and turn away from that and then look at our lives and ask ourselves, what am I learning here that I would never otherwise learn perhaps uh, any other way? What am I becoming in terms of godly character and the depth of my relationship with the Lord and uh, the depth of my faith uh, that I uh, and and becoming a, a person as a result of this that probably couldn't happen any other way? Another thing that uh, trials and tears do in our lives as we serve the Lord is that they purify our motives for Christian uh, service. I'll confess to you readily that when I became a pastor, that uh, my motives, I thought they were pure. Uh, but I had no idea how self-focused they were or how self-serving uh, they were, how self-kind of dominated uh, uh, they uh, were as I began. I think it's the case probably uh, with most of us. But one of the things that Christian service does, especially when it gets hard, is it burns off all of these other motives until we are left with the only motive that will survive over the long haul, and that is the motive of simply being obedient to God in his call upon our lives. Obedience to God in response to his love for us, in response to his lordship in our life. It's never a terrible thing. When something happens within our lives that the ministry becomes so difficult for us that we would say honestly to God, God, I would never do this 
I would quit in an instant. I would never do this for people. I would never even do this for myself. But I will do it for you. And that is a a very, very good uh, place to come to in our Christian service. It's come down to the motive uh, that will last through uh, all of the tests of uh, our Christian calling. One day the Bible teaches that all of our Christian service is going to be tested by fire. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. Perhaps we'll talk about it next time uh, with a little more depth. But it is the Bema Seat or the reward seat of Christ. And at that reward seat of Christ, only Christians will stand before the Lord at this. Our salvation is not in play in any way. But we will each of us be judged one day for our faithfulness to what God has called us to do and to be in this life. And our, our Christian service will be tested on the basis of what sort it is, Paul writes when he writes to the church at Corinth. In other words, what is our motive behind the service? Not merely the sheer amount of Christian service uh, that we engaged in, but what was our motive behind it? We can do uh, a mountain of Christian work and service, and the motive can be completely uh, dominated by myself. It can be selfish for doing these things or a need to be needed by other people and so forth. The only thing that will be ultimately rewarded for the Bema Seat of Christ is what we have done in obedience to him out of uh, the purity of, of that particular motive, our love for God and our love for People And one of the things that trials and tears do for us now is it puts our motivation in Christian service to the test now while our motivation can be purified so that one day when we stand before the Lord at that Bema seat, there will be something that will survive the fire, uh, the refinement of our motives and there will be uh, an eternal reward uh, concerning that. And whatever accomplishes that in our lives, in this season of our, uh, of our lives, in this lifetime before glory, uh, is valuable. And trials and tears accomplish that. And so here is this tremendous encouragement uh, that, uh, that this is normal in our Christian service and that ministry is costly. You think about how much of the advancement of the gospel in church history has cost people their lives. It has cost them sometimes their lives in an instant. Sometimes it has cost them their lives on a daily basis over 70 or 80 years. And this idea that the kingdom of God advances now in this age any differently than it is advanced in any other age is something that is goofy in our minds if we think uh, that that's going to happen. It's always required trials. It is always always required difficulty. It has always required uh, tears in order to serve the Lord and be faithful to what he has called us uh, to do. And then the only other subject that I want to look at this morning, we won't exhaust even what we've read here today. We'll spend one more Sunday 
uh, there. But I notice that Paul gives a lot of space here uh, to uh, the why and uh, the insight into his incredible emphasis upon uh, the Word of God in his ministry. And he talks about it in, in terms of the preaching of the gospel in verses 20 and 21, and then in, the, in terms of the teaching of the Word of God as a whole in verses 26 and, verse, and, and 27. First, the preaching of the gospel, verses 20 and 21. Uh, here you have, I think, in verse 21, uh, one of the greatest definitions of how a person uh, gets saved. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. First and foremost, as Paul understood it in the Bible, uh, as the Bible teaches, that salvation occurs by putting our trust or our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That believing that Jesus' death upon the cross as the very Son of God and God the Son, that is, as a sinless sacrifice, no sinner can die for the sins of other sinners. It took a sinless sacrifice to provide us with forgiveness. But that Jesus' death upon the cross has provided us with, and the Father with, the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of those sins, and that his resurrection from the dead testifies to the truth of his teaching, including his teaching concerning uh, the gospel, and it declares his victory over death. But in order to to, uh, turn toward God... I must, and, and uh, put my faith in Christ, I must, as a result, as Paul puts here, turn away from my life of sin and my life of self-will. I need to repent. I think it's very instructive to realize that according to uh, Matthew's gospel, the very first word that came out of Jesus' mouth in his public ministry was the word repent. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the beautiful thing to understand about that is that when Jesus called on the world to repent, there isn't any sense that he views this as some kind of a horrible or a miserable thing that he's calling on people to do. Instead, he considers it to be good news that he is delivering to them. He, pro- he proclaims repentance as a wonderful thing, as an excellent thing, as if he's offering mankind a tremendous blessing and a privilege in repenting. The word repent means to simply have a change of mind that results in a change of direction related to my life. It is to have a change of mind. At some point in my life, 
about the path I'm walking on in life. A change of mind about where this path leads. A change of mind about the direction that I'm going in life. Or the life that I am living. Or the sin in my life. Or the purpose and meaning of life. A change in my mind about the definition of right and wrong. A change in my mind about God. True repentance will always produce a practical change in my life and in my lifestyle. I will now determine to go in the direction that God has for me in life. I will determine now to live the life as God instructs me to in his word. I will define right and wrong on the basis of how he defines it in his word. I will choose to say no to those things that will draw me away from God. I will choose to say yes to those things that will draw me closer to him and so forth. These are all marks of repentance. And the single greatest evidence of repentance in our life is that my life will now be characterized by obedience to God's word. Not talking about perfection, but that I no longer walk in a deliberate, willful lifestyle sin. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. He said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, past tense, some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. They repented when they became saved. They were no longer the same person that they were. Jesus spoke in John 14, and he declared, If you love me, keep my commandments. And so the importance of a change in life and direction, change of mind about these things is a part of uh, uh, salvation. Now, why do I spend uh, the time that I am right now on the subject of repentance this morning? The reason I do is that I think repentance has become the lost word in modern evangelism. And I exhort myself in this regard. The idea uh, and and declaring uh, that I need to be willing to turn from my sin and from my self-will in becoming a Christian. And again, so often repentance is uh, viewed as some kind of a negative thing when in fact it is a tremendous privilege. For the person who wakes up one day, as I did at one time in my life, and reassess the direction of my life, the person that I had become, uh, the things that I was engaging in in my life, And then looking and saying, I don't like where I'm going. I don't like the person that I've become. 
I don't like the sins that I'm uh, addicted to. I don't like the kind of person that my own self-will is is producing. And then one day when a person uh, wakes up and we're sick of our sin and our self-dominated, self-directed life and we want a dramatic change, it is tremendous news to hear that there's another path in the one that we're on that we can repent of the life that we're living and then enter into the life that God has for us. And the desire to repent will always be in the heart of a person where the Holy Spirit is actively working in their life and drawing them to a faith in uh, Christ. I... I shall never, ever forget many, many years ago, 30, 31 years ago, when um, my family and I first moved here to Modesto and uh, to kind of formally start uh, Calvary Chapel Modesto. And there was a number of people that were coming up from Merced at that time. And so um, I began to travel down and do a midweek down in, in Merced. And uh, as I was teaching in some way related to this passage in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about, you know, neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or so forth shall inherit the kingdom of God and, and the importance of repentance and, and, uh, and so forth. And th- those who practice these sins, you know, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I'll never forget it. It wasn't the last time, but it was the first time I'd run into it where two young women who were at the Bible study that night, they came up to me and they were just absolutely livid uh, that I would declare that they were not going to inherit the kingdom of God. After all, they loved the Lord. They worshiped the Lord. They loved his word. They only just happened to be uh, fornicating with their boyfriends and uh, living with them without the benefit of uh, of marriage and, and uh, so forth. And who in the world was I uh, to judge them and their salvation and so forth? And I explained to them that I wasn't judging them. I was just teaching the Bible. Thank you very much. Uh, but God's word did uh, judge them. And I told them, and I've told many people since then, it's not like a regular conversation I have, but I'm not afraid to have it with a person because I would want someone to say the same thing uh, to me. But to declare, I declared to them that their willful, deliberate sin in the face of God's word here revealed that they weren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, They weren't on their way to heaven according to uh, what the scripture says here. And it wasn't their sin of fornication that was going to keep them out of heaven. No one is kept out of heaven by virtue of any individual sin that we commit. The only sin that can't be forgiven is a lifelong rejection of the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ and putting my faith in him for that salvation. But an ongoing, deliberate lifestyle of sin without any conviction related to that is an indication that that had not yet happened uh, within their uh, life, the practice of that. Again, I'm not talking about someone who's struggling with sin. And this is a willful, deliberate uh, engaging in those sins. And that was a conversation that I, again, have had repeatedly through the years. And I'm gentle, always gentle with people, but I always encourage them, don't bet against the word of God. 
Don't bet against it. Don't bet that there's something wrong with God and not with you. When you come up on the wrong side of something that God has said, always know that there's something wrong with the position that you've taken and you need to change that position. More recently, I was talking to a very, very mature Christian man uh, and uh, his calling is to teach high school age students and young adults. And he mentioned as we were talking about uh, ministry and ministry in that vein, he mentioned the change of mindset that has occurred uh, within the younger generation from uh, the older generation. And he would be a part of uh, my generation. And he stated in essence that this younger generation of Christians, they profess a love, not universally, but, uh, but it's becoming a, a critical mass. This professing a love for God and even the capacity to see themselves as what we would call an on-fire Christian. But they think that there's absolutely nothing wrong at all with premarital sex or even living together uh, before marriage. And all of this is getting worse and worse and worse by the year and by the decade. And it is getting worse in direct proportion to which repentance is being lost as an emphasis in our gospel presentations. And so the Apostle Paul here, like him, we must not lose sight of the importance of repentance. One final thing about uh, proclaiming the gospel uh, today, there's uh, uh, something that's kind of very, very uh, popular today. It's a, Fran- it's a, a saying of St. Francis of Assisi, and he wrote so many uh, uh, centuries ago. He, he declared, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. And I think we all know what Francis of Assisi was saying and, and speaking of kind of the powerful witness of a godly life, even if we don't say anything as Christians. But what we have to remember here is that that is as wonderful as that is in getting a person to respect us enough to be able to and then give us permission to speak into their lives. They will never learn the gospel by merely watching our lives. There must come a point in which we verbally share the gospel of salvation uh, with them. And it, it would be a, a tremendous loss for any of us as Christians to spend our entire lives thinking uh, that we have done all that we are called to do in terms of the Great Commission by merely being a great example within our family or a great example within our neighborhood or our workplace or at our school or in our community. There must come a point in time where people under, are made to understand what our need is for God's forgiveness and salvation and then uh, how he's provided for that need in Jesus Christ and then how we receive the gift of everlasting life and begin a relationship uh, with God. N- people will never understand that from my life alone. It must be spoken to them. Now let me close by uh, speaking to 
to Paul as he speaks about how he preached the gospel there in Ephesus, but also his teaching of the word there in verses 26 and 27. He declared to them, uh, and they were witnesses of it, that he had uh, taught them the whole counsel of God. And by that he means the whole Bible. The nice thing about Paul here is he declares this with a uh, a sense of accomplishment with a feel that he had done something great in Ephesus and had done something great for them in uh, declaring, not shunning to declare to them the entire counsel of God. And Paul said it with a sense of accomplishment because he knew what the Bible uniquely produces within our lives as Christians, uh, what nothing else can produce within uh, our lives. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. The Word of God tells us what is right, what is not right, how to get right, how to stay uh, right. There's no way that any of us can become a mature Christian and, and be properly equipped for Uh, this Christian life without the Word of God. Jesus declared concerning the Word of God that it sanctifies. He prayed to the Father on the night before his crucifixion concerning the disciples and us. Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. The Word of God feeds our inner man. What a meal is, a physical meal, is to our physical body, the Word of God is to our spirit, uh, to our inner man. Jesus declared in Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, physical bread, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it always helps me to think of that as a Christian, though I've I've heard it often in the course of my Christian life. But, you know, if you don't have the fuel, the physical fuel to function, uh, what happens to not only our body, what happens to our brain, what happens to our emotions, what happens to our our thinking, what happens to our in, in, in entire uh, physical self without nourishment, without food. And a loss of that, uh, it, it, the loss is just as significant in who we are and what we are spiritually if we neglect the uh, meat and the milk of the Word of God. Uh, a cute saying and related to this, more than cute, I think it says something important. Uh, somebody has said, seven days without the Bible makes one weak, W-E-A-K, uh, and spiritually so, of course, it's very, very true. Well, the Bible accomplishes a lot of things within our life. This statement of, of Paul is why, as a general rule, uh, here at Calvary Modesto, we study a book of the Bible uh, all of the way through on a Sunday morning. And then on Sunday night, we teach through the Bible from Genesis all the way through uh, Revelation. See, so why, do, why do we do that here? Because I don't know of any other way to declare the whole counsel of God 
to myself and to us except to teach the Bible from Genesis uh, to Revelation. And I am completely convinced that it takes, as someone has said, a whole Bible to make a whole Christian to reach the whole world. Now, one of the great things about teaching uh, the Bible from one end to the other is that not only do you ultimately hit everything that God uh, wants to say in his word, but you hit it in the exact proportion in which it is represented in the word of God. I'm never troubled by that the Bible repeats itself so much over and over and over again certain subjects and then other subjects they're addressed a little bit less. It never troubles me and I never have a problem speaking it even though maybe we spoke about it just two weeks ago or four weeks ago because again God puts it in his word in a proportion in which we need to be constantly reminded uh, of these things. The teaching all of the way through the Bible does something very, very good in me as a pastor because I'm like every other pastor. There are certain things I would rather teach and certain things I would rather not teach. There are certain things that I think in sermon preparation, this will not interest the audience as much as maybe this would interest uh, the audience. I got to play with all these things that are going on in my head like uh, everyone else. I have my own hobby horses like everybody else has. And what the teaching through a book, the book of Acts, like we're doing here uh, today in, in our series on Sunday mornings or on the Sunday nights, it, is it keeps me from uh, constantly focusing on the things that kind of dominate my heart, my relationship uh, with God, and it keeps me from getting uh, sidetracked. And it's only the teaching of the entire Bible that produces a, uh, the quality in a congregation concerning the depth of the Word of God that would never otherwise occur. I remember talking with a woman years ago now. She's in heaven, and she was uh, a pastor's wife. And her husband was a pastor in a liberal denomination, and she ultimately became saved after being a pastor's wife and uh, began to come to Calvary Chapel of Modesto. She could have gone to any Calvary Chapel she would have uh, wanted to go, but began to study as we were making our survey through the Scriptures and uh, in the Old Testament. And she said, it was the teaching of the Old Testament that allowed me to really come to know God in a way that I hadn't before. It produced a fear in me and a reverence in me for him that I had never, ever known before. The whole Bible is profitable uh, in this way and in other ways. And for the pastor, for the teacher, the leader, it takes all of these things out of our hands. It lifts a great weight off of us. And it's important not only for the pastors to understand this, but for the congregation to understand this as well. Maybe sometimes uh, even you, not for you've been around for a while, but you look and you say, why in the world would they teach through an entire book? Why would they not skip these passages when they come to them when clearly it's not as exciting as what's in the next chapter? And it is this kind of a mandate and a a charge from God 
uh, that causes us to teach the Word of God uh, in the way uh, that we do. And because Paul had teach, uh, declared the whole counsel of God to them, he declared himself to be innocent, verse 26, of the blood of all men. On a physical level in that day, when you would, if you were declared to be uh, guilty of the blood of another man, it was an indication that you were responsible for their physical death. So Paul carries it over into the spiritual realm, and he declared here that he did not want to be found guilty of having played a part in the loss of anyone's soul or in anyone ultimately ending up in eternity in the realm of judgment. And he declares here that his responsibility was to preach the gospel. It was to teach the whole counsel of God. And if he did, then that's where his responsibility ended. And then the individual's responsibility uh, uh, picked up where the hearer then had to kick in uh, based upon uh, what Paul did speak to them and they became responsible for what they then did with that truth. This is a very, very sobering uh, passage for pastors and it's important again for an entire congregation to understand uh, this. Paul's imagery comes from uh, the Old Testament, the life of a prophet by the name of Ezekiel, where God declared in Ezekiel chapter 33 that when a, a city is under attack, and the, the whole world is under attack from the enemy, and the church is as well. But when a city is under attack, a watchman was to be put on the wall. And if the enemy came against the city and the watchman uh, uh, shouted out to the city that the enemy was coming, then he was uh, guiltless related to their blood if they then ignored the warning and went on about their business. If the watchman knew that an enemy was coming and then he failed to warn the people that lived within the city, then God said, I will hold that watchman responsible uh, for the blood of those that are in that city because of his failure then uh, to warn. And the application for pastors and for leaders is very, very strong. Paul is declaring to them, to us today, this tremendous responsibility to warn people how do we do it by the teaching of the whole counsel of God. I remember how uh, this was uh, impacted me as I uh, watched a particular scene from a movie. I don't often mention movies as, a, as an illustration in sermons, but I remember watching a movie called Jaws uh, years and years uh, and years ago. No, I haven't been in the ocean since, um, at least with not that music playing, right? So, um, but... There was this, you remember the story where there was this great white shark, most of you have seen it, great white shark that is kind of terrorizing the, uh, a New England island community called Amity during the, uh, the summer vacation uh, period. And so the shark had killed, it was likely to kill again, and the police chief was determined to shut down all of the beaches and to warn all of the people. But the merchants got to him and said, this is the only time of the year that we make any money. 
and uh, you can't do this. And, and they compelled him uh, not to warn the population of, uh, of, uh, of the danger. And then uh, one day, as, as the movie continues, he's on you know, the beach and they're looking and watching for this shark and there's hundreds and hundreds of people uh, in the water. Uh, that shark then ventured into the shallow water uh, near the beach. It was just filled with all of these vacationers, blissfully ignorant of the danger that they were in. And there's this mother. It's a very powerful scene to me. There's this mother that is sitting uh, there on the beach, and she's brought her preteen son who's playing in the water with this uh, inflatable raft and so forth. And she's kind of, uh, is, is she's kind of preoccupied and looking away. And uh, all of a sudden, the shark comes up out of the water. Uh, and and as the boy is on the raft, and all of a sudden, he disappears under the water and uh, taken away, and his blood just completely fills the water. The mother, again, occupied when the event occurs. She starts to hear the screams, the shark, the everything that's going on, and people fleeing the area where she had last seen seen her son, and she begins to frantically search, you might remember the scene, uh, for her son among all of the panic crowd that's running away. She's frantically calling out his name. It's a very pathetic, uh, sad scene. And then ultimately she sees his inflatable raft, and it's punctured, it's in a pool of bloody water, and she knew her son had been uh, killed. And then when she found out that the police chief had known about the danger all along, and had failed to uh, warn uh, others, but he had kept the information to himself. She sought out in a later scene in the movie the police chief, Roy Scheider, and then walked up to him and, uh, and with just a trembling fury uh, inside of her, she slapped him across the face as hard as she could, and she said, why didn't you warn us? If I had known, I would have never allowed my son to get into the water. It was his responsibility to warn. And do you know what Roy Scheider said back to her at that moment? Nothing. Nothing. Because when that moment comes... And the shepherd has failed, then there's nothing that can be said to make that scene better. And I'll tell you, I never want to be slapped, not in time or in eternity, and be accused of any, by anyone who sat under my pastoral care of failing to tell them the truth, us the truth, that we desperately needed to know for our own safety, for the spiritual safety of our loved ones, and that is our responsibility to teach people the truth. And then what people do with that is their decision, but for the rest of their life they'll know that someone told them the truth. And the sense of responsibility that Paul's felt and that each of us as leaders are to feel is immensely strong and one in which each of us will one day stand before God in a way that no one else does and give an account to God in a way that no one else will. And I think it's important to realize uh, as a congregation that church leaders are under this kind of a mandate and responsibility before God.
And so we think as we close here this morning in terms of the whole counsel of God as a Christian, have you ever read the whole Bible? Have I ever read the whole Bible from one end to the other? Have I studied the Bible uh, from one end to the other? And it's important to know that there is a world of difference between teaching from the Bible as opposed to teaching the Bible itself. A person can spend, I can spend my entire life listening to teaching from the Bible. A verse here, a verse there, a passage here, a psalm uh, there, a lesson from the life of David here or there, whatever it might be. And I can spend my entire Christian life learning from the Bible and never learn the Bible. There's an entirely different uh, thing here and an expectation that we bring as Christians to church when we realize, no, I am, it is the responsibility of these leaders to teach me not only lessons from the Bible, but to teach me the Bible so I know the Bible and what it has to say. I'm going to hold you a minute longer, just tell you an a, a, a illustration from my life because I think it's important. In 1980, when I walked into Calvary Chapel of Napa in this regard, and I walked into that church on a Wednesday night, and I sat down in the back row. I was going to check it out, right? This is what you do. I was going to check the church out. And the pastor's teaching up in the front, and he is reading the Scripture, and then he's explaining what's happening in that Scripture, and then he would apply it to our lives. He'd read two or three verses. He was in First or Second Samuel at the time. You'd think, what in the world could you ever speak to, you know, a young adult in, in 1980 from First or Second Samuel? But he did. And then he would not move on to the next two or three verses and the next two or three verses and so forth. And a light went on in my life. And maybe I'm just kind of dull related to this. But all of a sudden, in that room, the greatest thing that I took away from that night was not anything that he taught, but it was the revelation that I can understand the Bible, that a person can understand the Bible, that I'm supposed to understand the Bible, the whole Bible. And it revolutionized uh, my life, and it revolutionized how I viewed the Bible. And I began to study it in that kind of a way that to come to church on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings or in the midweek Bible studies and so forth, it isn't simply to receive some kind of a pep talk from various passages in the Bible by virtue of which we spend our 40 or 50 years as a Christian and then go to heaven. Or as somebody has put it today, the teaching of the Word of God isn't supposed to be a TED talk and a verse. It is to be the teaching of the Word of God where I walk away from a Bible study and say, I understand what that passage means. I understand what God is saying there and why it is important for my life. And when that light goes on for me, if I ever end up on a deserted island someday, nobody can take that away from me. That, that word of God that has been planted deep within my heart. And one of the things that I pray it for is sometimes is new people will come in and maybe that's you this morning. 
and you've listened to me speak here a little longer than I want to, but that's the story of my life. But so often people will come in and they will sit down and here we are studying a passage like this and a person will think, why in the world would anybody listen to that? Why in the world is, is uh, uh, this uh, important at all? And I always pray for people to have that same light go on for them as it went on for me that one day where they say, I understand the Bible in a way I've never understood it uh, before. God wants me to understand the whole Bible. And then this great adventure occurs. And I know, I see it. This is a two-way thing that happens with what we're doing on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, at least related to me. And I see people come in and they struggle with it. It's to, they want to... You know, again, the 20-minute pep talk and so forth, and that has its place, uh, certainly, but not in the long run of growing uh, deep in my walk with the Lord and deep in the Scriptures. And I pray, and I pray, Lord, help them to get over that expectation that they are bringing to church and the Word of God and come into your expectation. And then once a person can kind of get over that hump, And that light goes on and says, no, I understand the word of God. I see it. The Holy Spirit is making this exciting to me. Once that happens, then nothing else but the teaching of the word of God and through the word of God will ever, ever satisfy us because of the superiority of what it produces within our lives. So here I am. I'm spending more time in this a section on ministry that I might otherwise uh, do. And I do it, it, it this morning because I see so much changing in terms of the redefinition of church and, and of what is required by God of those who lead it and how even the expectations of Christians are changing now. And there's this temptation to move away from the things that Paul is talking about here. And that would be a terrible thing if it ever happens. And so that's why I'm taking this more thoroughly and in, in looking at it so that we're all on the same page. Yes, in the coming weeks we'll be on to other things. But this does establish something very, very needed and important in our heart, not only for the leaders within the church, but for all of us in terms of our expectation of what a church is intended to be and why the leaders lead the way that they do. Let's stand and We'll close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this invaluable instruction. And I, as one leader in the church and one leader in this church, I thank you so much for it and how it keeps us safe in a sea of of new definitions and new ideas and a seemingly unending uh, series of experiments that are coming down the line and and, uh, what the church is supposed to be and what it's supposed to emphasize and what it's supposed to accomplish. And, And then this kind of insanity, Lord, I thank you and we thank you that your Bible speaks to these things and and for us to know that these things are defined by you and, and then to make those our expectations 
as well. Thank you for your word, Lord, and the power of it, the power not only of the gospel, but then once we got saved, what it has done in our lives that we never dreamed uh, could ever be accomplished. We thank you for the trials in our lives. We thank you even for the tears in our lives, for how they make us like you in a way that we would never otherwise become and how they purify our motives for the day that one day we will stand before you at that beam of seat. Thank you for this time in your word this morning, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.